the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome. You are listening to Hope and Faith Ministry, a broadcast of the historic People's Baptist Church in Boston, New England's oldest African-American church. Hope and Faith Ministry features the inspirational sermons of my father, Dr. Wesley Roberts, Senior Pastor at People's Baptist Church. We're so glad you're here. Dr. Roberts has a powerful message of hope and love for your life and mine. Now enjoy this broadcast of Hope and Faith Ministry, brought to you from People's Baptist Church of Boston. The message today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, 7 through 11, and the title is, How Should We Live in the Last Days? How Should We Live in the Last Days? When our four children were young, my wife taught them two prayers. One was a mealtime prayer, and the other was a prayer before going to bed. They are familiar to most of us here. The mealtime prayer went like this, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. Now the bedtime prayer said, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. Now the first prayer gives thanks to God as the source of all our blessings. The second acknowledges the uncertainty of life. I'm sure my children uh, didn't have a clue about the words, if I should die before I wake. As adults, we are well aware of the uncertainty of life. We know that every day some 7,000 people in this country uh, die. And so the question is, what if that bedtime prayer finally came true? What if after years of rising and shining, the sun doesn't come up for you? What if you knew that this would be your final day on this earth? What if you knew that you could not live or you would not live to see another sunrise? What would you do? How would you live? Something like that was on Peter's mind when he said, the end of all things is near. The phrase certainly includes the day of our death. Now when that day comes for you and for me, we will leave behind all that is of this earth. Our hopes, our dreams, our thoughts, our plans, our friendships, all of it will end when we die. Those who will live beyond us 
will go on without us, and we will go on to eternity to be with the Lord forever. No doubt Peter means at least that much. But his words go beyond that to encompass the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns to the earth, the entire earthly order will come to an end. Now, how soon are we to the day of Christ's return? Of course, we don't know. But the New Testament tells us that the day of his return is not far away. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Remember, the Lord is coming soon. And James chapter 5 and verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. And Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So how soon is soon? Now, since God does not reckon time the same way as we do, because we read that a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day in the sight of the Lord, then we do know that Christ's coming was soon, 2,000 years ago, was soon 1,000 years ago, was soon 500 years ago, and even five years ago. The fact is, the Lord could come at any moment, and in theological terms, we speak of that as the imminence of the coming of the Lord. He could come at any moment. Now, Peter is suggesting in this passage that if we really believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon, then it ought to make a tremendous difference in the way that we live. He singles out four things that are important for us living in the last days. First, keep your emotions under control so you can pray. Keep your emotions under control so you can pray. Verse 7 of chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Now, the Greek word translated clear-minded describes a state of emotional control so that under pressure, you don't waver or give in to anger or fear or otherwise lose your composure. We live in a day of personal computers, internet, email, Twitter, text messaging, and smartphones, which instead of making life easier for us, actually places us under great pressure to respond to all of the messages that are coming to us. In fact, in a two-day period, I can get as many as 200 uh, emails. And um, what I have to do, you know, just in order to get through them, is to leave some of them behind and then in three or four days just uh, erase them. And, uh, so I go through and I, and, I, and I select the ones that are really important to me, and then I erase the rest of them in a day or, in a day or two. At one time, I used, I used to be um, 
sort of guilty of doing that, but it doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> That's one of the advantages of getting older. <laughs> you see, to survive all that is going on, we need to be clear-minded so that we can see things in their proper perspective. Why? Peter says, so that you can pray. You see, when you're always running uh, from one thing to another, stress to the max, it's easy to become distracted, bothered, and controlled by your circumstances. So what happens? You can't pray. Your mind won't stop whizzing and worrying. You literally can't Pray or focus when you go before the Lord. I'm sure that you have experienced this, um, as I have, that when we are wound up like a top, we can't slow down long enough to be able to focus on God and pray as we ought. It's not easy to persevere in prayer when we have so many irons in the fire. Complaining about the state of your spiritual life seems to come naturally uh, to most of us. It's the moment we start to pray, suddenly we can hear music a mile away and we remember a conversation we had last week and before long we are not praying because we have been distracted. The point Peter is uh, making here is this. In light of the approaching end of the age, that is the second coming of Christ, don't panic, but pray. So the only advice I could add to that is uh, to start praying early in the day as soon as you wake up before the pressure of the day wraps its uh, arms around you. Start the day with prayer and you're likely to remain calm cool and collected all day long. So we do need to um, keep our emotions under control so that we can have the right perspective and be able to pray. But the second thing Peter mentions is that we should be quick to forgive the foolish things other people do. We should be quick to forgive the foolish things other people do. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, the word deeply might be better translated fervently. It was used of an athlete straining his muscles or a horse running at full gallop. It pictures a runner straining for the finish line or a basketball player leaping for a rebound, or an outfielder stretching for a fly ball. It means stretched out love. It's love that goes on and on and on. We must make that sort of effort because true love is difficult at best. It costs something. See, once you really get to know another person, real love means going to the wall for them, stretching to the limit, putting yourself in a place where you can even be hurt. In John chapter 13 and verse 35, 
Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You see, Jesus expects us as his disciples to love one another. It's not maybe, not uh, if you feel like it, but it's an expectation uh, of the Lord that we, his disciples, love one another. And to love is to open yourself up to the possibility of uh, being hurt, which is why Peter says, above all, love each other deeply. You see, there is a reason for this command. You see, we are to love each other with stretched out love because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, every time someone wrongs me, I have two choices. I can deal with it, forgive it, cover it, and move on, or I can drag that person through the mud and in hatred stir up all kinds of dissension. So love covering a multitude of sins means love refuses to wash its dirty laundry in public. Love handles it privately. It goes out of its way to cover it, to veil it, to treat it discreetly. It is exactly the opposite of hatred that exposes weaknesses and humiliates someone. Love deals with sin publicly only as a last resort. Love has a short memory and sealed lips. We need to hear this word because others will indeed fail us a multitude of times. Love isn't surprised when close friends fail. Love isn't surprised when promises aren't kept. Love isn't surprised when others write unkind letters or emails or post things on Facebook about you. And it isn't surprised when we are criticized unfairly. Fervent love expects others to fail, expect to be hurt, and expects to be used unfairly. It goes on loving anyway. You see, no church can survive very long unless the members decide that love will cover a multitude of sins. Because when you are together, you are going to find things not working out the way you would like, that people act in strange ways for different reasons. And the same is true of your work. No one can stay at any job for any length of time unless love covers a multitude of sins. And this applies to every part of life. Because sin is everywhere, love must be willing to forgive one another. You see, without forgiveness, we will never be able to live together in harmony. Listen to the scriptures on the subject of forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 6, 14, and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. In Matthew chapter 18, 21, and 22, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No. Jesus replied, 
70 times 7. And Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Forgiveness is a big part of the job description of a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to cover the sins of others. We are to forgive. But the second thing, or the third thing that Peter wants us to uh, think about is to stop complaining and start sharing what God has given us. Stop complaining and start sharing what God has given you. In verse 9, Peter says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality means kindness shown to strangers. It was virtually, it, it is vitally important in the early church because they didn't have church buildings. They weren't, um, they weren't rich. Uh, they had to meet in the homes of each other for worship services. And in that day, traveling Bible teachers and evangelists uh, would come into a town and stay with a local family. That's the only way they could survive. They had to because they didn't have Sheraton or, or a Hilton or a Holiday Inn. The inns they did have were filthy and dangerous. So the early Christian church depended on hospitality. And Peter says, show hospitality, but do it without grumbling. Maybe there were people that Peter knew of who were grumbling that they were expected to do certain things and maybe they didn't care for it. And so the Greek word used here means mumble under your breath. But why would anyone grumble about hospitality? You see, most of us don't look at our homes the way the early Christians looked at theirs. They saw their homes as not only a shelter for their families, but also a tool for ministry, a means of ministering to others. Far too many of us view our homes or apartments as primarily a shelter for our family. And if we open the door at all, it is to entertain a few close friends, a select circle of nice, approved people. But hospitality and entertaining are two different things. Opening your home to close friends uh, is a given. That's uh, assumed. You start there. But Peter is talking about using your home to minister to the body of Christ, to brothers and sisters in Christ whom you do not know well or don't even know at all, to missionaries, visiting preachers, families in need, Onward, mothers and children needing a place to stay. You see, biblically, your home is given to you for two primary reasons. First, as a shelter for your family, and second, as a tool for ministry. So if we are really interested in, in building the body of Christ, in seeing people come to know Jesus Christ, then we'll find creative ways of using our home to uh, entertain 
people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We can invite them over for coffee or, or um, a meal. Uh, include them in what you are doing at home so that they might get the chance to know you a little bit better and to see that uh, Jesus Christ is real in your life. We should be able to use our homes to introduce people to Jesus Christ. God gives us our homes as a shelter for our family, but also so that we can minister to others who need to know him. In Romans 12 and verse 13, Paul says, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And the end of all, and as the end of all things uh, draws near, it becomes increasingly important for Christians to open their homes to, to each other. And many of you are very uh, hospitable people. Uh, you use every opportunity to invite someone to your, to your home to share a meal and to get to know them, to have fellowship with them. Keep on doing that. That's a, that's a part of what the body of Christ is all about. And my wife will tell you that when we went to uh, a new city to, uh, to study, that um, the first place I would go is to a church, to connect to the church. And those people who did not look like me would invite me home, not just on one Sunday, but Sunday after Sunday, they would invite me home uh, to eat uh, lunch with them or to eat supper with them and um, do whatever we needed to do or go wherever we needed to go because at that point we didn't have a car. So we had to depend on others. And um, when I say God has been good, I do mean that God has used so many people to show the goodness of God to uh, me and my wife during our years of, um, of studying. But let's um, go to the, the last point. Use your God-given gifts to bless others. Use your God-given gifts to bless others. And 1 Peter chapter 4, 10 and 11 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised. You see, from these, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, that Paul describes what a spiritual gift is. It says, a spiritual gift is given to each of us as a means of helping the entire church. But from these two verses that we just read, we learn three things. One, every believer has a spiritual gift. Two, every gift may not be the same as anyone else's. And three, you are to use your gift to serve others. The gifts that God gives to us are not just for our own use. It is for 
others. And so when, when we are talking about the gifts that we have, we, we shouldn't uh, be praising ourselves or uh, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think because those gifts were not designed for us. They were designed for others. Peter categorizes spiritual gifts into two groups, the speaking gifts and the helping gifts. Now, speaking, speaking gifts include anyone who teaches the word, whether publicly or privately, whether to a group or one-on-one, whether from a pulpit or in a small group or in a Sunday school class. Peter says, if you speak, make sure you speak the very words of God. The primary temptation of any teacher or any preacher is to render uh, his or her opinion instead of the word of God. But helping gifts include everything in the church, such as cooking and serving a meal to a bereaved family, cleaning up after a church event, counting the offering, changing diapers in the nursery, visiting the sick, calling a member who is absent from church, writing a note of encouragement, giving money, praying, counseling, ushering, singing, and you name it. It includes just about everything that needs to be done in order to keep the church of God going. So whatever your gift is, do it in the strength which God supplies. The church needs every gift that you have. This is why God gave it uh, to us. No gift is too small to be used by the Lord. So there are no big jobs and little jobs. God uses according to the gifts that he has given to us. So here is a progression from God to us to others. See, when we stand before the Lord, someday he's going to ask, what did you do with what I gave you? You won't be quizzed about somebody else's gift, but you will have to give an account of your own stewardship. God gives the gift and then God gives the strength to use those gifts. All we do is to take the gift from God that God has given us and in his strength we use it to serve others, whether in the church or in the community or wherever those gifts can be used. He said, that is the whole secret of the Christian life. He said, the Christian life is not just about us. It's about allowing yourself to be used by God to be a blessing to others. And what is the result? So that in all things, God may be praised. That's the whole point of it. When you are blessing others by helping them, it's in order that in all things, God may be praised. So we ought to ask ourselves a few questions. So what have you done with the gifts God has given you? Who have you helped along the way? Is this church better and stronger because you are a member? Or it doesn't matter. Are you wasting God's gift or are you using it for the glory of God? 
He said, brothers and sisters, remember, Jesus is coming again, says, um, says Peter. And he's coming soon. The word declares it. The church believes it. The Christian expects it. The signs indicate it. The Lord promised it. The angels proclaimed it. And the spirit acknowledges it. Jesus is coming again. And when he does come, all of our anxieties will be removed. All of our questions will be answered. All of our trials will be ended. All of our problems will be solved. All of our tears will be dried. And all of our fears will be gone. When Jesus comes again, the saints will dance for joy, for they will have fought their last battle. They'll have seen their last grave. They will have shed their last tears, withstood their last storm, and handled their last difficulty. So knowing that the Lord is coming soon should inspire us to do a little bit more, to pray a little bit harder, to give a little bit deeper, to love a little bit fuller, to speak a little bit kinder, and to stay a little closer to the Lord our God. Yes, he is coming back, and he's coming back soon. So get ready and stay ready. Amen. Thank you for joining us here at Hope and Faith Ministry, a broadcast of the historic People's Baptist Church in Boston. We pray that you have been touched and inspired by today's message. People's Baptist Church is a Christ-centered, caring church located at 134 Camden Street at the corner of Camden and Tremont Streets. Our Sunday services are at 8 a.m. and at 1045 a.m. You can reach us at 617-427-0424. Come visit us in person or on the web at www.pbcboston.org. And tune in every Saturday morning at 1030 for another inspiring message of hope and faith. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.